tried to get me to eat more. So maybe you won't preach so long. I said, what in the world makes you think that? I don't know. That doesn't. Those two things don't correlate, so amen. Um, <clears throat> well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So that's what we're preaching about this week, and I want to spend some time in Psalm 77. I'd like to just, uh, again, start with some prayer. We'll have a few introduction remarks here, and then we'll get into the text there in verse 1. So let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that we know you this, this, this afternoon, and thankful that you know us. And uh, Lord, just thankful that we can have the assurance that we belong to you, and that we have the promise of heaven, the hope of eternal life. And Father, we're just thankful for the Spirit of God that indwells us. We're thankful for a sure word of prophecy that we can continually resort to and find help and strength and comfort and <clears throat> Lord really just all that we need for this life and certainly Lord we live in a day where our soul is often under attack and Lord many things that we'd face over the course of our lives that would rob us of our soul rest and yet Lord we have every reason to believe that you want something different for us you want us Lord to know and experience victory every day in our life. You want us to have joy and peace. You want us to have a soul that is at rest and that is quiet before you and even before and in the midst of the adversities that we face in this life. So Father, we just commit this time to you. We pray that your spirit would take the word of God and use it to meet the needs of our hearts this afternoon. We know that you're the only one that can do that, but we know that you can and we know that you want to. We just pray, Father, that our hearts might be in such a place that you'd be able to minister your truth to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> so that, it was some years ago, actually. I don't know. It's probably been 15 or 20 years ago. <clears throat> and it was not long after I started pastoring, actually, that I was doing some reading and studying and thinking about it in Psalm 77. And uh, it actually came to me in a very powerful way, particularly some things in the earlier part of this chapter. And just over the years, it's helped me a lot to think about some of the things that are laid out here for us. And uh, I've alluded to the passage quite a bit over the years, sometimes in preaching and sometimes in trying to help other folks. And, um, you know, I think about uh, some of the things that I'm likely to preach uh, the rest of the week and the things that I've already preached this morning. And, you know, just from my perspective, I think that in some respects this may be one of the more important messages just because of the, the possibility that could give us some real help about giving us a basis to be able to examine where we're at and to be able to self-diagnose, uh, self if you will, and get a sense of, okay, if these things are present in my life, if these things are beginning to happen, things may be moving in the wrong direction, this may be indicate some things that I need to give some attention to. And then we're going to look some here in this chapter also at, at how we kind of get that turned around, how we turn the corner. And if we're moving in a direction that's not good and we're moving in a, rec a direction that's going to uh, deprive us of soul rest, how we can turn the corner and start moving our, our thinking and our soul back in the other direction. Uh, because I want, I want God's people to have soul rest. And I know that we can. The folks at my church, I want them to have soul rest. I don't, 
I don't want them to be in such a place where things come along in life and their, their whole life is thrown into chaos because they're facing challenges, because we all do face challenges. And you know, again, even though I don't know you folks well, I've been here a few times and preached over the years, but I want you to have soul rest too. And I know it's available, and I know it can be had, and I know a lot of times the, thing, the kinds of things that we hear and the kind of counsel that we get from the world, it's the last thing in the world that's going to facilitate that in our lives. And I think this chapter here actually can give us a lot of help in that regard. <clears throat> it probably is kind of the linchpin to this whole series. And um, everyone, everyone faces depressing times and situations. I think all of us, if we live long enough, and probably most of us here have, feels the encroaching darkness of depression at times. Everyone at times feels like they're the only one, you know, that's what, that's what Elijah was saying, I'm the only one left, and sometimes we can feel that way, sometimes we can feel that way in our families, sometimes we can feel that way in our church, in our ministries, sometimes whole churches can feel that way, like we're the only ones, and um, probably all of us experience that to one degree or another at one time or another, <clears throat> but depressing times do not have to conquer our soul, they, they just don't have to. And in the midst of great tumult, there can be rest in our soul. And I think Psalm 77 is going to help us with this, but it is going to require the assessing of our soul. And again, and I know I mentioned this in a previous sermon, but I think this is a critical thing. We're going to have to be honest about where we're at spiritually. We're going to have to be honest with ourselves. It's not really a matter of being honest with, with our parents or our children or our spouse or our pastor or other people in the church, there's obviously a place for all of that, but really it's a matter of being honest with ourselves. It's really not so much a matter of being honest with God in the sense that God knows. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what we're facing in life. He knows exactly how we're responding to it and why we're responding to it. As it is. So there's no cover-up with Him. There's no way we're going to get past Him. He knows. I think the big issue is just being and being willing to be honest with ourselves. And um, we've got to be willing to do that if we're going to properly assess the state of our soul on any given occasion. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to necessitate an intolerance for excuse making. Uh, I've, I've, you know, my, my parents never really allowed that too much. Uh, but even as I've gotten older, I've just realized how detrimental that is when I do that. Because the minute I start to make excuses for my behavior, my attitude, whatever the case may be, I'm losing the battle already. Because as long as I'm making excuses for it, I'm not going to apply myself to figuring out what I need to do to get out of this mess spiritually and what I actually need to do to restore soul rest to my, to my own being. And so it's going to necessitate the intolerance of excuse making because there's no way, there's no way to escape the talons of depression without taking some personal responsibility. We've got to be very careful about listening to people that say, well, it's beyond your control. Because the minute we begin to listen to that and buy into that, then we're in a very hopeless and helpless situation. And the fact of the matter is, that's not the Bible's answer. That's not the message the Bible gives. The Bible does give us the message that we can't do it on our own. But what we've got to realize is just because there are some things that we can't do on our own and we can't manage on our own doesn't mean that we can't do it with God's help. 
and with the power of the Holy Spirit and with obedience to the Word of God, depression, just like any other temptation, has to be fought against. And listen, I'm going to admit up front, I get this, that, that depression and anxiety and these kinds of things, they're just like any other sin in the sense that there's going to be some people that this isn't really something they struggle with. And my guess is there's probably some people in this room like that. Depression is not something you really struggle with in any severe way. And at the same time, there's going to be some people that just tend to struggle with it more than others do. And it's going to be a harder battle for them to win. I'm very much aware of that. I recognize that. But the point is, wherever you fall in that spectrum, whether you're one that doesn't just really have much trouble with it, every once in a while you might have a day or two where you kind of feel down or have the blues or whatever, or you're one that, you know, you find yourself pretty often just having trouble getting a hold of yourself and, and moving in, moving forward in life and taking care of your responsibilities or anywhere in between there. The reality is, is that doesn't have to be the habit of our life. It just simply doesn't have to be. <clears throat> I, think, um, I think that depression can seem beyond our control because we have at some point surrendered, to control, surrendered control to it. Because you know, it's really like any other sin. If we surrender to it, then obviously we can't overtake it. Because we've given up to it. We've given ourselves over to it. So we've got to be very careful about that. It's, it's really just like uh, depression can seem beyond our control. Just like sobriety seems beyond the drunkard's control. It can be the same kind of thing. Just like financial stability seems beyond the wasteful man's control. Just like uh, being in shape seems beyond the lazy man's control. Just like compassion may seem to be beyond the angry man's control. But most of those things we would all look at. I think if we'd be honest today, most of those things I've just mentioned, we'd all look at that and say, well, if you're saved and you have the Spirit of God living in you and you'll obey the Word of God, you can have victory over those things. But for some reason... The, 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 the inclination is when we begin to deal with, again, what's oftentimes called emotional problems or mental problems, depression, anxiety, we want to put that in a different category. And, you know, that's not really like all of these other issues that we may have to deal with in life. When we're tempted to, we are tempted to, to depression just like we would be tempted to any other sin. And, yes, I did say that. I did say that. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. It is sin. And unless we're willing to admit that, we're going to struggle. It doesn't mean if we admit it that it's going to just like be all rainbows and unicorns. But if we admit it and we own it, just like any of these other... Listen, there's probably not one of us in this room that wouldn't say if we were trying to minister and and help a drunkard, we wouldn't have to tell him. He's going to have to admit that he's got a problem. You can't just go on making excuses for this, blaming it on other people, and saying, well, I drink because of this, and I drink because of that. At some point, they're going to have to get to a place where they say, I'm drinking because I am a sinner, and I'm unwilling to give this up for whatever the reason, and there can be lots of reasons. We either give in to the temptation or we fight against it. 
And when we start treating depression like it's different than any other temptation, then we've already chosen a losing, a losing strategy. When we start treating anxiety, or maybe the word we'd more commonly use is worry, when we start treating that different than all the other sins, we've already chosen a losing strategy. So I think Psalm 77 will arm us with some much needed truth to fight off the temptation to be depressed. And one of the remarkable things about this verse is it begins... It begins in the right place. In verses 1 through 7, I want us to think about a resistant soul. And in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a troubled soul. And in the first part here, in, first, in, ver, in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, we see that this person, the psalmist here at this point, is at the right place. Look there in verse 1. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and He gave ear unto me, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Okay, so now think about what he's saying here. He's saying a number of things, and all of these things, we would read these things, and if somebody was, was recounting this to us, and this was their experience, and this is, the, this is the decisions that they were making, we'd all be inclined to applaud this and say, this is a good thing, this is what you need to be doing. Because the psalmist said, I cried unto God with my voice. So, in fact, he was at a place where it wasn't just an internal thing, where he was praying silently. He gave voice to this cry out to God. He says, even unto God with my voice. And then he even goes so far as to say, and he gave ear unto me. So he said, I've cried out to God. Whatever his trouble was, whatever his challenge that he was facing, he cried out to the Lord about this, and he even acknowledged that the Lord had given ear unto him. And then he comes down in the first part of verse 2 and says, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. You know, every one of us I think would say amen to that. This is what we've got to do. In the day of our trouble we seek the Lord and that's where we're going to find help. That's where we're going to find victory. That's where we're going to find courage. Amen? That's right. It's great. This is exactly what he should do. And you know, I think about this, and I've, I've had people say something along these lines to me before, more than once, something like this, I've prayed about it, I've read my Bible, I've been attending church, and I'm still depressed or anxious or melancholy or whatever word you want to put in there. So I'm doing all of that. I'm reading my Bible every day. In fact, when people come to me with problems, the first question I ask them, are you reading your Bible every day? Are you praying every day? Because if they're not, that's part of the problem. That's why, at least part of the reason why they're at. But you will occasionally find someone that's saying, I'm doing that. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm attending church, and I'm still depressed. And so, in essence, what they're doing when they communicate that is none of that has helped. And so the implication is, is that it's not sufficient. I need something else besides these spiritual exercises and these spiritual disciplines. And again, like I preached in the first sermon, it's not just a matter of doing these things religiously. It's for the purpose of having a relationship with Jesus Christ and walking in fellowship with Him. But you say, well, how can a person do these things and it not apparently be working? Well... It's because it's possible to do all the right things with the wrong attitude. And if we're doing that, doing all the right things at the end of the day is not going to help very much. Look in the last part of verse 2 there. Well, let's read the first part of it again. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord, 
Then he immediately says, My sore ran in the night and ceased not. And here's the real key thing. My soul, there it is, refused to be comforted. Did you see that? So here we have the psalmist saying, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and He gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. So you're thinking, okay, this guy's on the right track. He's doing what needs to be done. But then immediately he says, My sore ran in the night and ceased not. Is it not interesting that depression seems to be worse during the night? Lots of people who are struggling with this, the struggle tends to be harder when it's dark outside. Tends to be harder when it's time to go to bed. Tends to be harder when you're laying in bed at night. And you know, as I think about that, and I, I mean, I'm even thinking about that from my own personal experience, that that's gen generally been true with me. If there's something that's creating anxiety in my life, usually it harasses me more when I go to bed at night. When I lay down, that's when I'm, I, I can start having these anxious thoughts. Well, why is that? I think if we can answer that, we might have part of the answer to depression in general. And I think part of the reason is because during the day, I have things to do. I've got to get up and be about my business. Now, I realize a person can be so depressed that they even leave that off. We'll talk about that in a minute. But generally speaking... We have to get up during the day, we have to go to work, we have responsibilities, have children to take care of, have errands to run, whatever the case may be. So the reality is, is that my mind does not have the luxury of staying occupied with a problem. Because i got to get and drive a school bus. Right? i gotta, I got to try to be disciplined enough to be conscious that I'm driving a huge vehicle, I'm responsible for 20 or 30 kids, and, and the parents are looking to me to get their kids to school and back safely. So my mind is occupied with that. So I don't really have time, generally speaking, to think about whatever might be troubling me and whatever might be, able, might be causing my anxiety. At night, though, when I go to bed... My mind has more liberty to think on what it wants to. And so when I think about that, I think the point is really this. Depression is largely caused by what we think about. What am I thinking about? What's occupying my thoughts? There's a reason why in Philippians chapter 4, and I don't have it all quoted, but you'll, it'll, you'll, you'll probably register with us. Think on these things. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are just. Remember that passage? Think on these things. And the reason is because what we're thinking about is going to determine the state of our soul to a very large degree. If every time a person's mind is at liberty, it races to ruminate over their problems, it's no wonder that they battle depression. And it's why their sore runs in the night and ceases not. It's interesting that the psalmist says, and ceased not, because, again, it kind of leaves the impression there's nothing that I can do about it. This sore is just an open wound. It's running constantly. It's not ceasing. There's, I haven't been able to find a way to, to cure this, to remedy this, to take care of this. My depression just settles on my soul. It's always there. Every night I'm tormented by my depression, my anxiety, my addiction, whatever it may be. But really the key thing here at the end of verse 2 
Is my soul refused to be comforted? So we're talking about the soul here. And he's just told us, he's acknowledging this, that my soul refused to be comforted. This word comforted, it's actually a pretty interesting word when you get to looking at it. It involves the idea just in a general way to sigh. So, it's the idea of breathing strongly. By implication, it involves the idea of to be sorry, the idea of comfort, the idea to ease oneself. It even carries the idea of repenting. So that caught my attention when I saw that. Because the word here is comforted, and yet the word embraces the idea partly of repentance. And so I, I looked into that a little bit more, and the Hebrew word here is used 108 times in the Old Testament. 67 times it's translated to some form of comfort, like it is here. The other 41 times, so it's not quite half, but it's, uh, well, I'm not good at math. It's 41 times. I won't give a percentage. <laughs> Try to do that on the fly. I'm in big trouble. The other 41 times it's translated some form of repent. Is this starting to draw a picture for us? Could it be, I mean, I'm just asking, could it be that there's comfort in repentance? Could it be that if we want our soul to be comfortable, that we're going to have to engage in repentance? Could it be the reason that we're not having soul rest is that we have things that we're not repenting of? At bare minimum, it's worth asking ourselves. Bare minimum. But then there's this word refuse. So my soul refused to be comforted. The word refuse here is translated from a word that means refuse. <laughs> That's interesting. Webster's 1828 dictionary defines it this way denied, rejected, not accepted. So, my soul denied to be comforted, which embraces the idea of you say, say it with me, repentance. My soul, my soul rejected. I wish you could combine comfort and repentance. There's got to be a word. We ought to coin a word. My soul rejected the comfort that comes through repentance. And consequently, my sore runs in the night. You say, preacher, are you suggesting that I want to be depressed? Is that what you're suggesting? Are you trying to say that I want to be depressed? <clears throat> well, you may not like my answer. When the drunkard says, let's, let's think about it in another context. When the drunkard says, I want to quit drinking, but doesn't, why? Well, I think, the, I think the answer to that is quite obvious. He says he wants to quit drinking, but he doesn't because at some level he's deriving pleasure from it. He's getting something out of it that's enjoyable. 
It could just be the matter that it's dulling his pain otherwise, and however temporary that may be, and however that may ultimately be compounding his problems, at least while he's under the influence of alcohol or drugs, he's kind of freed his mind from all of the stresses and pressures of life. So while he wants to he probably knows he should quit. He probably may even know that it's creating bigger problems for him. He doesn't because he's getting some benefit from it. When the glutton says, I don't want to eat so much, but they continue to do so. Why? Well, that's even more obvious, isn't it? Because we'd probably be more inclined to be guilty of that than maybe the other. And the glutton that says, I don't want to eat so much, but they continue to do. The reason they do is because pizza is good. Right? Root beer floats are good. Chips and salsa. Not just going down the line. So I want to eat less, but I don't. And the reason I don't, even though I know I should, is because I'm deriving some pleasure from it. It tastes good. It's fleshly lust that war against the soul. You know, all sin has adverse consequences. Every, and the consequences are built in. You know, we think about God judging sin. There's really a sense in which that doesn't have to happen. Or maybe to put it another way, God doesn't have to actively judge sin. All He has to do is remove His hand of mercy, just withdraw, and let sin run its course, and the consequences are naturally built in. And it will bring its own judgment. That's true of all sin. But people continue in it because there is an element of pleasure. So let's go back to my question a few minutes ago. Preacher, are you saying that I want to be depressed? Well, what I'm saying is, you say you don't want to be, but you continue to be. And you don't have to be that way. So are you ready for this? You're likely deriving some kind of pleasure from that. You need to hear this. And I say that not because I know that anybody, like I say, you might all be squared away. But most of you have a long life ahead of you, so... Self-pity. Oh, poor little old me. People actually derive pleasure from that. Elicit pity from others. Have people come along and, oh, you poor thing. And people like that. Somebody say Amen. Anybody, somebody say amen. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. We say, well, no, I'd never have such motives. Well, sure we would. Sure we would. So we like the self-pity. We like to elicit pity from others. We, we enjoy that. 
And even if it's bad enough, it allows us to abandon responsibilities. Oh, well, they're, they're struggling, so you can't expect this out of them. You can't, you got to be careful what you say to them. Listen, okay. I'm all for being careful what you say to people. But I'm also all for telling people the truth. And, you know, I think Paul had the right thing when he said in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love. Just because you want to be loving to people does not mean you don't tell them the brutal truth about the matter. And we do people a grave disservice when we won't do that and when we won't admit it about ourselves. So it allows people at times to abandon responsibility. And here's another thing. You, you know, you might give this what you want, but the power it gives over others. So, yeah, there's a good chance that you like the pleasure element that you get from being depressed and maybe the attention that it gets you, maybe the allowances that are made for you because of it. And so you're unwilling to enjoy and experience the comfort that comes through repentance. <clears throat> I know people that are guilty of that might say it's not so, it can't be. But the psalmist here said, my soul refused to be comforted. I mean, a refusal sounds like a choice to me. That doesn't sound like something that's passively happening. That sounds like somewhere a choice was made, comfort was made available through repentance, and I refuse that. I refuse that. Well, there's got to be some reason to do that. There, that person has done a cost analysis and says, you know what? I'm willing to have this in my life because it provides me this, and I enjoy this, so I'll suffer with this so I can get that. And their soul refuses to be comforted. <clears throat> This is why, this is why you can cry to God with your voice, read your Bible, and go to church and still be depressed. Listen, folks, I am not saying that. Again, I, I, I don't know anybody that's here. Nobody may be struggling with any of this. But I'm saying this because this is the truth, and I want to help you. If not now, tomorrow, or next week, or next month. It's because your soul refuses to embrace the repentance that brings comfort. Yes, you've come to the right place, verse 1, but with the wrong attitude in verse 2, which leads to a desperate condition in verse 3. Look at verse 3. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah, strike up the music and let's meditate on that for a minute. So all of this has led us to a desert. What, what could create a more desperate condition than going to the right place, doing the right things mechanically, 
thinking that that's going to address the issue of anxiety, depression, whatever other addiction that we might have, only to find out that it's not because we've not come with the right attitude. And so then we even have a greater sense of hopelessness and despair. And then things kind of start to snowball, and it does get increasingly difficult, actually, to try to manage it and to cope with it. Again, not impossible, not impossible at all. God is able, but we are making it more difficult. You notice what he says in verse 3, I remembered God and was troubled. Now, I don't know about you when I read that. Uh, that's a red flag to me. Why would I ever remember God and be troubled? The only reason why I could think that would be a legitimate mindset is if I'm in known sin. And then when I remember God, I may have reason to be troubled. But really, this is the result. The idea of remembering God and being troubled by that is the result of going to the right place with the wrong attitude. God cannot even help me with my depression. The Bible is not even helping me. My prayer life is not helping me. Attending church is not helping me. So you remember God and you're troubled as a result of it. And then what happens? He says, I complained. I tell you what, when we start complaining, that ought to be a red flag in our minds. Let's be very careful about complaining. You know, that's one of those things we just kind of mark off. We just kind of slide past it, don't think much about it. But it's hard to read your Bible and not realize God makes a big deal out of complaining. And we need to be conscious of that. This word complained, it means to ponder by implication to converse and especially converse with oneself. So this, this word complaining involves the idea of communicating with yourself, talking to yourself. Thinking in your own thoughts, if you will. Webster's defines it as an expression of grief, regret, pain, censor, or resentment, lamentation, murmuring. It even defines it as a finding of fault. I would suggest that to complain is ultimately to find fault with God's providential leading in your life. Because you know there's not a thing that we complain about that God either didn't uh, actively bring or passively allow into our lives. There's not a thing we could complain about. One thing in, in my and I've, this, this is kind of a, a touchstone thing for me because some years ago I said, you know what, I began to think about this idea of complaining, how that really wasn't a good thing. It just creates a bad spirit in you when you find yourself complaining about just everything that comes along. And uh, one of the things that lots of people seem to complain about, and I know in our area it's easy to do this in the summertime because on the coast it's not really like scalding hot. I mean the temperature's up into the 90s or something like that. So it's not uncomfortable so much from that, but the humidity. So it's like 92 and 76 or 82% humidity. And it's, you know, it can be pretty miserable. It can feel pretty miserable. I mean, on Sunday mornings during the summer, you know, I, I walk out the front door and by the time I get to the car, I'm already sweating inside my suit jacket. And, uh, you know, it's hard sometimes, particularly if you're wearing a suit jacket, to have enough air conditioning. Uh, you know, at the church build, of course, I'm preaching lights and all of that. And, you know, I'm always going to be hot. I'm, I'm hot even in the wintertime, but uh, certainly in the summertime and sweat. In fact, this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but I'd, I was like, did I bring my sweat rag to the pulpit to wipe off? You just get to sweating. And so people will complain about that. So I've really made it a point, and it's kind of helped me in a lot of other areas. I'm not going to complain about the weather. Now, the last few days, it's been a little on the other side. 
our, our weather was starting to warm up, and my wife and I looked at each other and said, we're going to Alaska? <laughs> we're, our weather is finally warming up, and we're going to go to Alaska and really be cold. But I really tried not to complain, because complaining is a dangerous thing. I would suggest, again, that to complain is ultimately find fault with God's providential leading in life. I mean, especially think about it in the context of the weather. God's the one that controls that. And he controls everything else. And then what happens in verse 3? My spirit was overwhelmed. The idea there from Webster's 1828 dictionary is to immerse and bear down in a figurative sense as to be overwhelmed with cares, afflictions, or business. And that's the way it's being used here. It's just to be overwhelmed. The cares of this life, the afflictions, the challenges that we're facing, and we're just like being, we're being borne down because of those things. We're being flooded over because of those things. And the reality is the day of trouble that he mentioned back in verse 2, the day of trouble can even easily turn into soul trouble if we're not managing that correctly. We refuse to be comforted. We remember God and are troubled. We complain and now we're overwhelmed. But listen to me folks, when we get to the place of being overwhelmed, we didn't just wake up one day and we were there. There was a path we walked down. There were some choices that we made. There were some spirits and some attitudes that we tolerated in our life. We don't just wake up one morning overwhelmed. But we look at our life and we want to we think that's the case and, and want to say, well, I don't know how I got here. But if you'll be honest and you'll think back and you'll reflect on some things, I think we can see the path that we came from and why we're at the place where we are. And again, at the end of that, he says, Selah. Well, this results here... Yeah, a troubled soul, but by the time we get to verses 4 through 6, we see a withdrawn soul. In verse 4, we see a deepening depression because he says, Thou holdest mine eyes waking, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So, him saying here that thou holdest mine eyes waking, really it's just another way of saying I can't sleep. Right? He can't sleep because he's overwhelmed, Right? And he's overwhelmed because when he remembered God, he was troubled and he complained. And he got to there because his soul refused to be comforted. He's there because he came to the right place with the wrong attitude. And so now he's saying, thou holdest mine eyes waking. So he can't sleep at night. And interestingly enough, look who he's blaming for it. He's saying, God, you won't let me sleep. But in fact, when I read my Bible, I find it's the exact opposite of that. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in, but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. God gives us sleep. We're having trouble sleeping at night. That's not God's fault. There's something going on in our heart. My granddaddy used to say, if a man can't go to sleep at night, he's not working hard enough during the day. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. 
But, you know, sometimes you, get, you start having these kinds of problems and you can work hard all day and you still can't go to sleep because you lay down to go to sleep and your soul's running in the night and, boy, you're just, you're, you're, your mind's just racing. Have, has, have, am I the only one that's ever been there? Right? Mind's just racing. And you're like, Lord, I, help me to think about, I want to put, and, you know, I guess eventually you lay there long enough and you just get tired enough and sleepy enough you fall to sleep. Some people stay awake all night filled with anxiety apprehension says I'm so troubled I cannot speak so you know what that leads to it leads to curtail of social involvement don't want to talk to anyone so troubled I cannot speak and probably don't want anybody to talk to you either I'm not so sure that really the root of this is you don't want to have to deal with anybody because when people get far enough along in this process they don't want to deal with anybody they don't want to have to talk to anybody, and they definitely don't want anybody talking to them. And that's not a good thing. And in fact, church-going people like us can even get to the point where you don't want to go to church. You know, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to deal with people. I don't want to see people. I'm sure there have been plenty of people over the years that have stayed home because they were dealing with anxiety and depression and just didn't want to have to interact with people, didn't want to have to negotiate that. Probably, uh, well, I know, I know this for a fact because I've heard people say these kinds of things. You know, they're just going to try to encourage me because they don't understand how bad I feel. That kind of a mindset. Just my wife just pointed out to me somewhere, somebody had written somewhere or something that, you know, when Elijah, when he was running from Jezebel, you know, the Lord just came and comforted Elijah and spoke kind words to him. And, you know, sometimes that's what people need is just have somebody to be an encouragement or a comfort to them. Well, we can't read the same Bible then. We just need to God said to Elijah, what are you doing? And he asked him that two times. Yes, he sent an angel and he fed him and he told him in the strength of this meat you're going to go 40 days. But he called him to account for what he was doing. And in fact, you read through the end of that chapter, that marked the effective end of Elijah's ministry. Because God told Elijah, you're going to go, I think it was uh, Jehu or Azahel, he was going to anoint as the next king of Israel, and he was going to anoint his own successor, Elijah, to the office of prophet. God was through with Elijah at that point. This is important stuff. So, yep, you become withdrawn. My soul refused to be comforted. That's what the scripture says. And this whole, you know, people do become withdrawn, but I've never really known that to make depression better. In fact, I would go so far as to say it does not make it better. It just doesn't. It leaves you alone with your thoughts. And that's not a good thing. And so you, you pursue that course long enough, and it's not going to be long. And even when the sun comes up, night continues in your soul. If you don't want to drink anymore, then you don't go where they sell alcohol, right? You abstain from even the temptation of that. If you don't want to be depressed, then you don't arrange to be alone with your thoughts. Because if you are, when you get to this stage, you're going to find yourself in big trouble. Depression is helped by more social interaction, not less. 
Social interaction, that is, with the right attitude. Because here the psalmist said, my soul refused to be comforted. That's why people will say, I feel alone in a crowd. But I would suggest to you this afternoon, that's not the crowd's fault, that's your fault. Because you can actually go out to where people are at and still be isolated. I mean, I, I'm sure this never happens here. But I've seen it where I pastor. People will come in and sit down in a corner of a pew somewhere. Not want to engage with anyone. And their body language is making it quite evident that they don't want anybody to talk to them. So yeah, they're at church, right? They're in a, a social gathering, to, so to speak of. But clearly they've isolated themselves. And they're communicating that through their body language. So I'm not talking about being engaged in church, coming to church, being socially engaged. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that just in general. But you understand, being out where people are at, not just doing that, and yet doing it in a sense where you're going to be among people, you're going to be at your church, but you're going to be isolating yourself while you're there. That, that's counterproductive. Look in verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. A darkened perception. The psalmist says, I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. So he says there in verse 5 that he's considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. You know, really, and for the believer, this should be a good thing. We should be able to think back in our history with Christ, and it should be an encouraging thing. But it's not the case when it's done by a soul that refuses to be comforted. I mean, think about it. Think about it. If we're saved, and we're here this afternoon, and we're saved, how many blessings has God given us during the course of our lives? How many? You know, the songwriter said what? Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. There's something terribly wrong when we begin to think about the days of old and the years of ancient times and we're doing it with a wrong spirit and not realizing when we look back that God has been good to us. And you know, the fact of the matter is, if we want to get down to the nitty-gritty of this, if God never did one thing for us but save our soul, that ought to be enough to keep us rejoicing and praising Him and having joy for all of eternity. That ought to be more than enough. But if we'll all look back, we'll realize we have that and even more. And yet we still struggle to look back when we get to this stage in our life and find the goodness of God there. In fact, notice what he remembers when he does that. I call, to I call to remembrance my song in the night. So, here he's considering the days of old, and all you can remember are the struggles, the difficulties, the hardships, the disappointments, the times of sorrow. And Listen, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. I'll be 60 years old next year. I can look back over my life, and I can make a long list of disappointments, struggles, and heartaches, and all that. Those of you that are much younger could do the same thing, right? We can all make that list. But if we're saved, we can also make another list. And the issue becomes when I look back, what list am I going to focus on? We get to decide that. This is a choice we get to make. And it's going to affect how much rest we have in our soul. 
Because when all I can remember is the bad days, I've got to be willing to admit that I have a soul problem. You know, I've, in fact, I've learned in my life, I've lived long enough to learn this, that yeah, there's plenty of bad days back there, but if I refuse to think about them, I don't focus on those, eventually over time, I almost kind of forget about them. If, if they come up in conversation or something, I can't even really remember the details anymore. Amen? The memory of that fades. We do have some control over this with the help of God. I can't afford to remember in this condition, when I'm in this condition, I can't afford to remember the countless good days. For if I do, then my soul might be comforted and my soul is refusing to be comforted. If I think of the good things that have happened in my life, I might be called to repentance by the Holy Ghost for my ingratitude and selfishness. Right? Notice the last part of verse 6, a dangerous response. I commune with my own heart, mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. So what's he doing here? We kind of touched on this earlier. I communed with mine own heart. So we've gone from crying unto God with my voice to communing with mine own heart. So let's think about where, we're, where we've come to here. A heart that's facing a day of trouble a heart that's refusing to be comforted, a heart that when it remembers God, it's troubled, a heart that is complaining, a heart that is overwhelmed, a heart that is socially withdrawn, a heart that only recalls songs of the night, and now your communion with your own heart at this stage is to ensure continual depression and anxiety. If you keep pursuing that, just communing with your own heart and your own thoughts. You'll never have victory over those things. Because as one mounts arguments providing justification for their depression, they are even less likely to heed the call to repentance that produces comfort and have rest for the soul. In fact, he says at the end of verse 6, My spirit made diligent search. So, But where is he searching here? He's not searching his Bible at this point. He's not searching out the heart of his pastor for help or, or some godly counselor. He's searching in a heart that's been darkened by depression and anxiety. And what does that kind of searching produce? It produces questions. What kind of questions? Look in verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord cast off forever? What a question. So I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask these questions as they're given to us. And then I'm going to answer them with the Bible. Imagine that. I don't have to take a pill. When I find myself asking these kinds of questions, if I do, here's the answer. Will the Lord cast off forever? Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the answer to that. We don't have to complicate this. The Bible speaks to it. Will the Lord be favorable no more? Well, the answer is, Proverbs 12, 2, a good man obtains favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Listen, if you believe the Lord is not showing you favor, that says more about you than it does about God. Because the Bible says, 
a good man obtaineth favor of the Lord. And if you say, well, is the Lord not going to be favorable anymore? This is a reflection upon me or you. It's not a reflection upon God. He asked the question, is the Lord's mercy clean gone forever? Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. Because His compassions fell not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Does the, Lord, does the Lord's promise fail forevermore? These are the questions that's being asked. And you know, most of us probably here this afternoon, we're too spiritual to ask these things out loud. But we'll ask these things in our hearts all day long. Does the Lord's promises fail forever? Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? He's going to make it good. If he said it, he's going to make it good. His promises are not going to fail. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? How can he who is gracious forget to be gracious? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 145 verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Question, has God in anger shut up His tender mercies? Answer, Psalm 145 9. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all His works. So every one of these questions that a person that is in this state of soul asks, the Bible has an answer for it. And, and we read our Bible and say, well, that, there's no help here. Well, there is help there. Listen, I get it. We may not know where to look. The Bible's, the Bible's kind of a big book. We may not know where to look, but I, I, I can give you a couple of hints here. Number one, you've got people in this church that can help you find places in the Bible that will answer your trouble. Okay? The second thing is, buy a concordance. And you just look up the words till you find a verse that answers your question. Man, we just, this is not, it's frustrating to me. Not because people have trouble. That's not the frustrating thing to me. I get that. I've got troubles. Okay? What frustrates me about it is that we've allowed the world to complicate it for us. We've allowed the worldly system to make it seem like these issues that we struggle with are, you know, they're really so complex and so, so convoluted that this is beyond the scope of the Bible this is beyond the ability of your church and your pastor to help you with. You've got to have something more than that, and that's hogwash. I mean, that's just the way I'd say it. It's hogwash. I, I just have more confidence in my Bible than that. You'll notice in these questions that we've asked, the, these words recurred several times. Forever, no more, forever, Forevermore. And all of them are used in a negative context. So there's an expression here of absolute hopelessness. Like things can never be right again. I can never be whole. 
All of these questions pertain to that end. It should be noted that the very state of depression, just the state of being in that condition and being filled with anxiety, if you will, and for that matter, for that matter, really any other addiction or trouble that we're having in this regard as it relates to soul trouble is an expression of these questions. Just the fact that we're experiencing it. Because again, we may not ask the question mentally or verbally, but our depression is asking these very questions. The fact that we're struggling with these things is asking these very questions. But the problem is, is we refuse to be comforted. Verses 10 through 15, I see a responsive soul. The first part of verse 10, I love this. Boy, this I wear a hat nearly all the time. And so I have a place where I hang them at the house, and we have a hat rack at the church because some of the other men wear hats, and so we have a place to hang our hats when we come in. So you're familiar with the expression, place to hang your hat. I'm telling you right now, Psalm 77, the first part of verse 10, this is a place to hang your hat. Look what he says in verse 10. And I said, this is my infirmity. Hallelujah! Somebody's taking responsibility for themselves. Someone's saying, all of these issues I have, it's not God's fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not because of my circumstances. It's my infirmity. It's my weakness. It's my shortcoming. Yes, it's my sin. This is great right here. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. You know, the previous questions had called into question the Lord's faithfulness and integrity. It is at this point that the resistant soul becomes a responsive soul. The corner is turned right here. Because owning the infirmity as our own is the essence of repentance that produces comfort. Because, again, I probably cannot say this enough. Depression, anxiety, all of these things, they're not God's fault. They're not other people's faults. You know, there was a time, I don't know, it's probably been 20-some years, 20, probably been 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was this philosophy going around in psychological circles that People grew up and they'd have trauma in their lives. And I, I just don't, this makes no sense to me. They'd have trauma in their, I, can, I, I understand things can happen to people when they're children. They can create trauma in their life. I get that and I, I, I can understand that. What I have trouble understanding is this adult is having trauma in their life because of something they don't remember in their childhood that must have happened. But nobody knows what it was. But we're going to get you in the office and we're going to talk to you Do you make up a story. And usually it's making up a story about your father or your mother, come on, or a grandparent or an older sibling, an uncle, come on. Nobody knows this. There's no evidence of it. But there's got to be something that happened in your past that nobody knows about, you don't remember, and that's why you're having these troubles. I mean, I, don't, I guess I'm just simple-minded, but that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. 
Now, if something happens to you when you're a kid and you remember it, I get that. I get having some struggles with that. I get, I get the idea of needing some help and maybe having to work through some of those things. But I'm going to tell you right now, even the answer to that, and you may not like this, but even the answer to that is forgiveness. Listen, I'm not even pretending it's easy. I'm not standing here before you and say, if you've had traumatic things happen to you in your life, this is just an easy thing. You just, just forgive them. It's just an easy thing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it can be done by the grace of God. It can be done. And that's what liberates a person. You say, well, they never, they never said they were sorry. And they may never. But your holding on to it is not going to liberate you. So these things can be done. Now he's responding in a positive way. Depression is not the fault of our circumstances. Well, I lost my job. That's why I'm depressed. Well, no, not really. It's just evidence that there is something not quite right in the soul to begin with. And the fact that you lost your job is manifesting that. And quite frankly, we could say that about any loss. Depression is an expression, and again, any other anxiety, any other addiction, anything like that, is an expression of my own infirmity. So my sore running in the night and not ceasing. Remember he had said that? But by the time you get to verse 10, my sore running in the night and not ceasing is my infirmity. My soul refusing to be comforted, that's my infirmity. My being troubled and remembering God, that's my infirmity. My complaining, that's my infirmity. My being overwhelmed, that's my infirmity. My sleepless nights, that's my infirmity. My social withdrawal, that's my infirmity. My only remembering my songs in the night, That's my infirmity. My accusing questions of divine favor, that's my infirmity. I'm telling you, we'll do ourselves a great favor by owning it. That leads in the last part of verse 10 through verse 12 to a fresh, uh, a fresh commitment. Look there at the end of verse 10. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I like the fact that he says he's going to remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Because you could actually go through the Psalms and find several places where it makes reference to the right hand of the Lord. And it's always emblematic of power and deliverance and strength. So when he says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High, what he's now saying is, I will remember the Lord's strength and His deliverance and His power in my life in times gone by. Psalm 63, 8 puts it this way, My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. And I got news for you today, His right hand still upholds the people of God. He says there in verse 11, he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. So I'm going to remember the works of the Lord. Instead of remembering my songs in the night, come on. Instead of remembering my songs in the night, 
I'm going to remember the works of the Lord. He says in verse 11, Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Psalm 77 and verse 11, he said, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. He goes on in verse 12, I believe it is. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. Contrast that with verse 3. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained. Now he's saying, I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. So complaint is transformed into praise. Imagine that. You know, God's name is always worthy to be praised. If my whole life comes unraveled and I'm left a shell of a man in the ashes of everything I hold dear, he is worthy to be praised. And even in the most traumatic of circumstances, if I, if I end up with the eye syndrome, I'm going to be in big trouble. My soul. <clears throat> While in verses 7 through 10, the psalmist was asking God, or asking what God will do, and it was all in a negative context, now in verses 10 through 12, he's declaring what he will do. Four times he says, I will, beginning in verse 10. He says, I will. Now he's not focused on what God's going to do because he's owned this. And having owned it, he's, he begins to make some decisions and he begins to say, I will. And he says that four times in these verses we've just looked back, going back to verse 10. I will. The question is, will we? <laughs> and maybe more to the point, will you? Notice the progression. I will remember... Verses 10 and 11, I will meditate, verse 12, and I will talk in verse 12. Because there's a very definite progression there. Because remembering the right things will have us meditating on the right things, which will have us talking about the right thing. And it's amazing how anxiety and depression, the fog of that, just evaporates in a new day sky. Just because of these they can be difficult to implement, but what's got to be done is simple. It's really the self, best kind of self-medication. I'll tell you right now, it's better than taking a pill and really just blunting the edge of something that's not really being addressed. And you know, I noticed something else about this. We're getting ready to wrap up here, but I noticed the resistant soul is remembering and meditating. Back at the first part of the chapter, verse 3, I remembered. Verse 5, I have considered. Verse 6, I called to remembrance. So the soul that is resisting, it's remembering and meditating. And the responsive soul is remembering and meditating. In verse 10, he said, I will remember. Verse 11, I will remember. Surely I will remember. Verse 12, I will meditate. So a couple of things about this comparison. Depression, anxiety, and all of these things, or the lack thereof, is directly tied to what we're thinking about. There's no way to get away from that simple premise. The resistant soul is passively remembering. This is an important thing. The resistant soul is passively remembering. The responsive soul is actively remembering. 
So the person that's resisting and their soul won't be comforted, they're just thinking about the things that naturally come to their mind. Let me ask you something. Is it a safe course of action to think about the things that just naturally come to our minds? That's usually a very bad idea. We've got to take control of our thoughts. We've got to dictate. We've got to remember actively. We've got to, we've got to decide what we're going to remember and you know, because we're going to be remembering something. We're going to be thinking about something. The responsive soul says, I will. The responsive soul determines what to think about. Notice in verse 13. All of this creates a renewed perspective. In verse 13, the preeminence of God. He says in verse 13, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? I mean, do you see the difference between this and the first part of the chapter? It's like literally night and day. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Psalm 102.19 says, For the Lord looked down from the height of His sanctuary. From heaven the Lord beholds the earth. So now we see God high and lifted up. We see Him where He rightly belongs. In fact, He says, Who is so great a God as our God? What a great perspective that is. Amen? There's no God like our God. In fact, God Himself says, There's no God like unto me. And there isn't. And this is a perspective that reorients our thinking in the day of trouble and wards off depression and anxiety. Notice verse 14, the power of God. He says, Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Yes, this is true. Thou art a God that doest wonders. Verse 13, he said, I will remember thy wonders of old. I tell you what, it's amazing. It's amazing how remembering the right things will help us think about the right things. He said in verse 14, Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Back in verse 10, he said, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Thy right hand upholdeth me. And then lastly, in verse 15, says, Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. So thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people. God's concerned about his people. You hear what I'm saying, do you? God's concerned about you. He's concerned about the state of your soul. He's concerned about the fact that as believers and people of God, that you have rest in your soul. God is anguished when we're filled up with anxiety and depression and addictions because He knows He has the power to deliver us from those things. It says the sons of Jacob and Joseph. It's interesting here because He says, Thou, thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, and then he says, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So yes, he is concerned about people, but he's concerned about individuals. You know, he's concerned about me. And he's concerned about each one of you on an individual level. And then there's the word Selah again. Now, there, in this part of the passage that we've covered, and we're, we're finishing there in verse 15, the word Selah has been used twice. And you can almost mark it down. One Selah is in a minor key. The other is in a major key. And we get to decide which one it's going to be. We get to decide where that stopping point is going to be in our life. Where we're going to camp out. Where we're going to, where we're going to raise the, the, the flag of our Selah. And we're going to play the music. And what kind of music is going to be played. And where our soul is going to be. So I'm just going to ask you in conclusion today. What about it? What about it? Do you, as a rule, have a resistant or a responsive soul? Because it matters. 
Psalm 77 reminds us of what the path to depression looks like and gives us the direction we need to have rest for our soul. The temptation to depression can be overcome by embracing the awareness this psalm provides and applying the principles it reveals. So instead of having a soul that refuses to be comforted through repentance, let us say with the psalmist every day, this is my infirmity, and own it, and let God give us the strength to have rest in our soul. Brother Dimlo.